You don't need a pocket calculator to know that this is episode number 19 of Sex the Podcast. <laughs> Where did the twang come from? <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's like a surprise every time we start one of these episodes. Who is Bob going to show up as today? <laughs> so this episode is with a woman. Her name is Ashley Manta. It's a really powerful episode. Uh, she is so vulnerable and so powerful and she speaks to her experience as a survival of sexual assault and somebody who is a huge advocate of consent in relationships this episode is called surviving sexual assault and learning consent and how i met ashley was through a number of other sex educators that i've become friends with over the years uh, namely Arden, who we interviewed uh, the first episode. Or it was I, I think, think she was episodes number two, two and, and three. three or three yeah. and four. So Arden is actually who turned me on to Ashley and also fell in love with her. Uh, same space where I met Megan, who was our last episode. We all met together and were just being girls together and talking sex and all of that. But to hear Ashley's story of how far she's come and then to overcome her obstacles in such a way that now she's an educator and also bridging these very taboo spaces around cannabis and sex and really coining the brand Canisexual and being a big advocate and writer and coach and facilitator. Mm -hmm. Some of the things that we talk about in this conversation are consent and conscious choice in sex. We also talk about empowerment, strength, and pleasure in sex versus validation seeking. Ashley shares her story of surviving rape multiple times and how she's healed enough that she has actually become a sex educator and is impacting a lot of people all around the world. Mm -hmm. And to me, one of the most important things we talked about is how to support a survivor of sexual assault, how to be with them, talk with them, the energy to have around it, because we have great intentions, but it might be coming across in a way that actually isn't helpful to someone that's had a trauma. This episode is rich, informative, it's powerful. We hope you enjoyed as much as we did. Mm -hmm. Ashley, thanks for getting together with us to have this conversation today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm excited about it. Oh, yeah. I've been counting down for <laughs> sure. <laughs> so where we usually start, um, we like to jump right in, which is so not kind of how sex usually happens, which is foreplay first. But maybe we've been doing foreplay <laughs> leading up to let's this, get, right? Let's skip the foreplay. Let's skip the, <laughs> let's foreplay. Skip the foreplay. Let's just go let's right, right to the good play. stuff. <laughs> Yeah. Well, the foreplay is good stuff, but I suggest we definitely get right in there because yeah. it's so much to get into. <laughs> True. So if, my dear, you could um, share with us and obviously all the people that will be listening to this episode, uh, the Cliff Notes version of your sexual history. And that might be when you first started having sex or even just the ideas or concepts around sex before you actually had sex. Absolutely. Yeah, I was raised in a very conservative Catholic household. Mm. Um, So my plan was to be a virgin until I got married. And uh, that plan was pretty majorly upset uh, when I was raped when I was 13 by an acquaintance of mine who was 16. And I remember thinking, I don't want to lose my virginity. And he, I said that to him when he got off of me and he said, it's too late. You just did. And that was really impactful Mm -hmm. for me because what I had been taught up to that point was that being a virgin until you're married, until you were married was what really gave you value Mm -hmm. as a woman. Mm -hmm. And if I wasn't a virgin anymore, what value did I have? And so my 13 year old brain decided that if we weren't going to be a virgin until we were married, we were going to get really good at sex Mm. because then clearly the value would be the pleasure that I could bring to a partner and that would give me value. Uh. And so that really shaped the way that I approached sex for a long time. Um, In high school, 
I would have sex with boys to get them to pay attention to me mm-hmm. and to get them to like me. And ditto in college, really until like part of the way through college before I started to really see these patterns that I was acting out and recognizing how problematic that was because it wasn't coming from a place of empowerment or strength or or pleasure it was coming from a place of need and a place of of, of a need for validation specifically and let me ask you about that though what was your what was your awareness or your mindset at the time while you were doing that i just knew that i didn't have a lot of friends And so I felt like I didn't have a lot of redeeming qualities as a human. And if I could be good at sex, that would be my, my skill set, my, my trump card. And did you think that consciously? I did. Okay. Yeah. As a, as a teen and into like my early twenties, I thought that, um, even after I told my survivor story for the first time, my freshman year of college, which was in April of 2005, that was the first time I ever like really claimed my narrative out loud to a group of people. And it was hugely powerful and really like great for my healing process. And that sort of started me on the path of re-examining the ways in which I moved through the world sexually. And it made me want to help people. It made me want to understand trauma. It wanted to, it made me want to understand why I made that conscious decision at 13 and so I started studying trauma and I started doing victim services work. And in my personal life, I was still dating assholes. Mm. I dated people who cheated on me and I would take them back even though they would cheat on me because I didn't think that anyone would ever like really love me. And so I had a lot of uh, what I've heard called maintenance sex. I had sex because I didn't want to have a fight. I had sex because I didn't think I was allowed to say no. I had sex because I didn't think I was worthy enough to not have to have sex Mm. to bring myself value. And it took some major therapy and time and wonderful partners who have started to undo that, that mindset for me. Yeah. Got it. So then just to go back to kind of your story then. So you're in college. Um, that was when you first kind of claimed your story around it and shared your story with a group of people. And you're still pretty sexual in college. Was that? Very much okay. so. Um, I would say, let's see, my f- <laughs> My freshman and sophomore year of college, I developed an eating disorder um, as a result of depression and a lot of other factors. And so I went from 188 pounds to 132 pounds in about five months. And so for the first time, because I had been curvy my whole life, I was getting a lot more attention from guys. Uh, And that was before I fully recognized my queerness. So I was still very much in like heterosexual land and very, very, very boy crazy. And so I had this like rockin' bod and all these guys were paying attention to me and it felt really good. And of course they wanted to have sex with me. So I did because even if I didn't want to, like I felt bad for not wanting to, like I was teasing them. Like I didn't feel like I had any kind of agency of my own Mm -hmm. sexually. And so I made a lot of decisions that I look back on and I'm like, that was not coming from a place of your hell yes. That was coming from a place of like needing that validation, like I said. So I stopped doing that. Um, And I made the sort of conscious choice that if I was going to be including people in my sexual sphere, that they were going to be really great people who respected me and cared about me and weren't just trying to get off. And it was around that time in like 2011 ish, um, when I started dating my former primary partner who I was with for about four and a half years. And he was the first person I dated who was really much more interested in my brain than what I could give to him sexually. Mm. 
And in fact, our relationship went through periods of no sex. And that was hard for me. Because I was like, well, if I'm if I'm not having sex with you, then then what am I bringing to the relationship? Right. And through the relationship, that kind of healed this idea that I had to show up sexually in order to be worthy as a partner. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious if there was something specific that had you stop having sex with. Uh, with as many people and kind of what I hear you saying is hold it as a more sacred space. I'm curious if there was something specific that happened or if it was just through the work of doing your therapy and stuff like that, that it eventually came around. Yeah, it was definitely a gradual process. Like I started saying no more often and, and especially really in the last three and a half years, almost four years, um, my sex life has really transformed and finding the sex positive community, going to cuddle parties and play parties and understanding that asking first and consent and and saying yes from a place of like your hell yes was really transformative for me. And so now I'm definitely having more sex than even I was in college, but I'm now doing it like fully over my emotional center of gravity. Like I'm doing it consciously. These are the choices that I want to be making because it's fun, because I enjoy sharing sexual space with people. Like I'm doing it for reasons other than just to validate myself. Mm -hmm. And how is that? Oh, go ahead. That has made all the difference. That's I'm having the best sex of my life, Mm -hmm. hands down, Mm -hmm. no contest. Yeah, and I was going to ask to talk about the difference. What is, how is the experience now different than it used to be? Oh my gosh, it's it's really night and day. Um, After I would have sex with guys in college, I would feel really empty and shitty the next day. Like, okay, the sex is over, they're not going to call me again, or I'll never see them again, or they won't call me until they just want to have sex again. And that felt really lousy. And and it wasn't fulfilling. Now it feels fulfilling and it feels whole. I feel much more whole sexually as a being. Mm-hmm. And I have two regular lovers and I have a lot of casual play partners, some of whom are fellow sex educators, um, some of whom I've just developed close friendships with over time, and they're sort of, you know, friends with benefits, if you will. And and I go to a lot more play parties, but I'm a lot more choosy now about who I let into my sexual space. Um, we have to vibe well. I have to. You have to have an energy that appeals to me. It has to be a much more even exchange where. In college and and even in line, like five or six years ago, I was really good at sex and I would show off how good at sex I was, and I wanted to to sh- to prove like my sexual prowess. And now, I look for sexual partners who can at least meet me where I am. Um, I don't expect everyone to be able to fuck like a sex educator, but <laughs> I um, I definitely expect more from my partners than I have in the past, and that's made a huge difference. Mm. I was just wondering, how do you think it would have been if, I don't know, like five years ago, 10 years ago, if the kind and quality of person that you're having sex with now had appeared in your life, would you have been, like, what would that have been like? Do you think you would have even been open or able to have a sexual interaction with them? I think I would have wanted to, Mm -hmm. and I think I would have tried to, but I don't know if based on like everything that was going on with me back then, if I would have been able to make it stick because I don't think that I believed I deserved Mm -hmm. it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm curious what the other kind of um, other repercussions or stories that got made up around sex because of of the rape that happened when you were 13? I mean, the idea that my only value was as a sexual object was definitely a, uh, a big one. Um, the idea that I had to make up for the fact that I didn't have a traditional body, um, that I've been curvy my whole life, except for that brief period of time where I was anorexic. 
um, I felt like I had to be extra adventurous or extra amazing or like have lingerie or like really do my makeup up nice or like I would somehow have to earn someone wanting to have sex with me. Mm. And so that was a big thing because um, one of the things that I was told kind of over and over in, in high school and into college was nobody would rape a fat girl. Wow. Really? Yeah. Yeah. If, if someone had sex with you, you must've wanted it because, because who would rape a fat girl? Uh, Like who said that? And when did they say it? It was said, I mean, not, not friends, thankfully, but just I would hear conversations. I would hear other people talking. I read a book called Yes Means Yes by Jessica Valenti and uh, Jacqueline Friedman. And in the foreword, Margaret Cho wrote about having that experience. And I was like, oh, my God, I've heard people say that. Mm. Is that wrong? Like, I couldn't even tell you who specifically. I just remember hearing it you know, over the course of high school into college, okay, so just, uh, even not necessarily directed at me. Yeah. Okay. Just like general conversation. It was yeah. just the conversation that was being had around you. Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so yeah. I internalized that. Mm, yeah. I was wondering what impact that might've had on you. Definitely had a lot of impact. And, you know, my parents, while they never said that to me directly, of course, they put a huge premium on physical appearance. Um, they were both either thin or fit and very into like healthy eating and going to the gym. And that was never really my deal. And so I was shamed a lot for my body Mm. at home. Mm. And so like, I always felt like having a fat body made me less than Mm. Mm -hmm. until now, now I've, I've gotten over that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I, I now really, I'm starting to love my body in ways that I didn't even think were possible. Mm. And that feels really good. Can you say more about that? Yeah. um, Over the course of the last maybe four or so years, I've really started to step into my power as a woman, as a person with a fat body, as a survivor. And um, I've been surrounding myself with other people who are body positive, and that's made a, a remarkable difference. Um, my friend Lauren Marie Fleming just published a book called Body Love, and it's all about like learning to love your body. And I worked my way through her workbook, and that made a big difference. And I've read stuff like Big Big Love and Hot and Heavy, and I've I've made friends with like plus size porn performers and and things like that. And I've, I've watched these incredible beings move through the world loving their bodies. And I was like, well, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. And I remember CatalystCon 2013, which was my first CatalystCon, which is a sexuality professional conference. I had people who were interested in making out with me. And I was really excited about that because these were people who believed in every you know, fiber of their being that you should be a hell yes if you're going to engage with someone. And so I knew that they weren't just doing it as a favor to me or or to make me feel better about myself. Like they were there because they were a hell yes. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I started taking like pictures of my body and and looking at it and 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 finding things to say about it that were, if not positive, at least neutral. Like I started undoing the negative self-talk that I would say every time I would look in the mirror. Oh God, your, your stomach's so fat, your, your chin, I hate your double chin, like all these negative things. And I would, I recognized that and I stopped doing that. Yeah. It's amazing. The things we tell ourselves in that way and both, and you can't even tell at a certain point, like whose voices are these? You know, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so, I'm curious to hear about. Um, there's a few pieces of the question, but the the general question is: How has your relationship with your family changed? And and I'm also curious about that in the context of your survivor story. And when did you have that conversation with them? And what mm-hmm. was that like? And mm-hmm. just how things evolved. Uh, over the years. Oh, 
Yeah, that is a that is a complicated and multifaceted question. Mm-hmm. So my dad was the first parent I told about what happened when I was 13. And I didn't tell him until 16, 17, 18, somewhere in there. Um, and I told him what had happened. And his response, which he says he doesn't even remember saying, and he has since apologized for, but his response was, well, at least he didn't hold a knife to your throat, which was kind of minimizing and dismissive and like not the reaction I would have expected to get mm-hmm. from my dad. Mm. He recognizes now that what he was getting at was, I'm glad you're safe. Mm. Okay. Yeah. But of course, There's a level you know, of empathy my... that you were probably looking for that you didn't get in that moment. Exactly. Well, protectiveness, so... I would imagine. Like I've, I can imagine the part of you that was like, imagining he would get furious or upset or want like worried. Yeah. That that's real. Like I thought that if something bad happened to me, that the men in my life, my dad and and my little brother would like kind of rise up and, and protect me. And in that case, like that didn't happen and that was okay. Like I wouldn't have wanted my dad to go after him or anything like that, but there was something that I was expecting that I didn't get. Mm -hmm. And that, that hurt. And you know, my dad and I have an amazing relationship. Like he has been my strongest supporter, my entire adult life and most of my childhood, like this was kind of just his one sort of big fuck up. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, parents aren't taught how to respond to kids, tra- to kids trauma. Oh, wow. So like, you know, I, I've forgiven him. I've moved on, but like, that was sort of my first experience with talking to my dad about it. My mom and I have never had a very close relationship. Um, she is also a sexual assault survivor. Um, oh, wow. mm-hmm. And she blames herself for what happened to her. So mm. by extension, she blames me for what happened to me. Mm. Um, I don't even think I told her about what happened when I was 13 for like many, many, many years. Um, but I was actually raped in grad school by an acquaintance. And I did tell her about that. And she told me it was my fault because I was drinking. Mm. And... <laughs> I was like, wow, mom, that's really fucked up that you would say that. Like, no, that's not how that works. You can't give consent when you're intoxicated. What I was doing has nothing to do with it, you know, and I, we fought about that. I stopped talking to her for a while and we actually just stopped talking possibly forever because I brought that up again. That conversation happened in like 2009 and my mom had asked me like, why do you think we don't have a close relationship? And I was like, well, for one thing, you told me that my second rape was my fault and she's like, oh, that was 2009. You need to get over that. Mm. And I was like, you know, I don't actually. Funny thing about that. I don't have to just get over it. I can say that that's not behavior I'm willing to tolerate from someone who claims that they love me. And so that was a really powerful, like, self-advocacy moment for me. Mm. Mm. Um, and that just happened, like, in the last two months, mm-hmm. that conversation and and we haven't talked since and my life I think is a lot better mm-hmm. without having that kind of toxicity in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but my dad has been so supportive and, and so wonderful and like, I'm really grateful to him and, and he knows everything about my life. He knows that I'm a sex educator. He knows that I talk about sex and weed for a living. He knows that I've done porn. Um, he has, no interest in knowing my stage name. He's like, please just, just tell me what sites to avoid. <laughs> I was like, all right, cool. We can, we can workshop this. It's fine. Just another dinner time conversation. Just at another the dinner time conversation. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's really excited that I get free sex toys. Cause the huh. ones that I don't want tend to go to like my friends and family. <laughs> so it sounds like your parents aren't together anymore. Oh, goodness, no. No, they got divorced when I was 12, which actually was before the rape. Um, And Hmm. my mom moved to these townhouses, which is actually how I met my rapist, because he lived in those townhouses. Hmm. So I'm not saying that I blame her, but there is some... There are things that would not have happened if she hadn't moved there and divorced my dad Hmm. and, like... And so then to have her be so dismissive, mm-hmm. like, just made everything worse. Yeah, got it. 
So what was then, I mean, I didn't even realize you had a second experience of rape. Um, I actually have had three. Wow. Um, and it's very, very common mm-hmm. for uh, sexual assault survivors to be victimized more than once uh, because of the way that your brain responds to trauma. You, like for me, dissociation is my default trauma response. Um, which means my brain, as soon as I realize I'm in a situation where I could be harmed or someone might disregard my no, or like if I get any kind of sense that they are going to push on my boundaries and not care that I'm setting them, my brain goes on vacation. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened the second time. And that's what happened the third time. And the third time was in 2011. Oh, wow. So that was pretty recent. Yeah. Yeah. That was an on-duty cop. Both of our eyebrows just went up. Yeah. And no, before you ask, I didn't report it um, because I didn't want to go through the court process. I have I've seen that as a victim advocate. I've watched people go through mm-hmm. the criminal justice system. And while I think it is a very valid choice for those who choose it, um, it's not a choice that I want to make it's incredibly re-traumatizing mm-hmm. and i didn't want my experiences to be litigated mm-hmm. what's well, interesting actually that wasn't even a question in my brain i don't know what, what that yeah i was <laughs> i think i was way more concerned about just your kind of like physical and emotional well-being <laughs> and just what that experience must have been like i didn't even think about mm-hmm. um, uh, well you are 50 points ahead of every other person i've told <laughs> that story to <laughs> wow yeah yeah um, as the as in the default response is well did you did you like, like what did you do did you, about you get it? yeah did you go get them back are they being punished for yeah. it are they being punished did they go to jail yeah all of that is are among the first responses which um for survivors like to hear that is actually not good um because it's, it immediately puts them on the, on the defensive and like they did something wrong right. if they didn't yeah and that they then have to like justify um, which you you just totally watched play out. Like I didn't, you didn't even ask me the question. I just anticipated yeah. it and answered it anyway. Wow. Like, <laughs> and there's a way that it's invalidating to the person's experience. I would imagine is there's this person who is hurting, and the first thing that I think is, well, did you are are they being punished? Like, did you get them back for it? Right. Instead of saying, wow, you must be hurting. That must like right. Yeah. So. Yeah. So yeah, that's um, having multiple victimizations in my past definitely impacted the way that I saw sexuality, the way I moved through the world sexually. And and having a trauma-informed therapist and like really taking the time to do a lot of the healing work has made a tremendous difference. Um, I've engaged in other modalities besides talk therapy, like EMDR, which is... Um, eye movement desensitization and reprogramming oh, yeah, I've heard of that. or reprocessing mm-hmm. rather mm-hmm. and that's been a super helpful healing modality because you go back through and you see the trauma happening and you kind of you process it completely the way that you're not able to do in the middle of trauma mm-hmm. yeah yeah well, and I think the thing that I man I, I think whenever I hear about a survivor situation the the two kind of questions that come up for me is a kind of like the what must their heart be experiencing given all that and then how are they able to kind of enjoy sex again you know after such a traumatic experience and traumatic association with sex right and that's has been challenging um I just wrote this blog post yesterday, a couple days ago, where I talk about the fact that I, it's kind of a big deal for me to be the one who talks about sex and cannabis mm-hmm. as openly and as, as positively as I do. Um, because my, the person who raped me when I was 13 was using cannabis at the time. And I associated what was happening to me and my dissociation with cannabis and blamed it on that. Like my ability to not be able to fight back. I was like, Oh, it must've been the cannabis Mm. that he was smoking around me. And 
only very recently, despite like all of the training I've had in trauma, did I actually make the connection that it wasn't the cannabis that was the issue. It was, of course, him completely disregarding my consent and the dissociation response to trauma. Um, and I realized that as I was laying in my bed on Sunday morning, reading Jessica Valenti's memoir that just came out, Sex Object. And she has, like, even in the first chapter, she talks about, like, victimhood and and dissociation. And, and for some reason, like, some combination of words that she put together, like, made something click in my brain. And I went, holy shit, that's where that association came from. Mm. And so now, like, when I use sex, and and use cannabis to enhance sex and have sex when I'm high, that's a very courageous act for me because I am taking something back that I thought was was put upon me, you know? Wow, yeah. And just to be able to... Well, and it's interesting that you didn't even realize that you were doing that, like, in, in the process because... I hear that this is a recent revelation for you in. Yeah, very recent. Mm -hmm. And like, I was noticing that it was feeling really good and really empowering to be choosing to do this. But I still hadn't made the connection until so recently. Well, and what does have one want to combine sex and cannabis and educate around it? What does what? Um, what does, like, what is the process? What was your process? Um, how does one decide to combine the two and, and then educate around it? Well, I had been doing sex education, like I said, started off doing victim advocacy and sexual violence prevention almost 10 years ago. And I moved to California in... August of 2013 and that was the first time I ever had access to medical cannabis Mm. so I got my pot card I went to a dispensary for the first time and I thought all right you know I'm gonna see what it's like to be able to use really good cannabis because I grew up on the east coast where weed is terrible (laughs) and and I used it and and I would masturbate and that felt really good and yeah I agree there <laughs> yeah, super good. Super good. And I was like, well, hmm, this is neat. And then I started hearing about this spray called Foria. And it's a THC infused coconut oil spray for vulvas. Hmm. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> Somebody sat down and was like, what would happen if you put THC on your bits? <laughs> this is brilliant. <laughs> And so I was like, I have to try it. I absolutely have to try it. And I finally got a chance to try it in uh, July of 2014 after meeting their director of PR, Brittany Confer, um, who's lovely and we've become good friends. And we had this awesome business meeting at the SLS in Beverly Hills. And we were eating like caparinas that were mixed with liquid nitrogen. And I was feeling so fucking cool. Like... <laughs> I am having a business meeting about sex and weed and this is great. (laughs) (laughs) And so I started trying to like do some research on it. And I realized that there really weren't any sex educators talking about combining sex and weed. It was sort of frowned upon. Mm. Um, The, the prevailing wisdom is to have sex when you're sober because you can't consent when you're intoxicated, which is true. And, and with alcohol, I totally stand by that. But what I realized was that no one was talking about the nuance that exists with cannabis. Um, There's no way to imbibe alcohol and not get drunk. However, there are a number of ways to imbibe cannabis and not be experiencing psychoactive effects. And Foria is one of those ways. Um, It's a topical. It doesn't get you high. It just makes you feel really good. Mm. You spray it on 25 minutes before sexy fun times, solo or partnered. It increases pleasure decreases discomfort which is something that i experience as a result of my trauma um i have what's called vaginismus which is pain with penetration we just heard about vaginismus not that long ago (laughs) 
we interviewed Small an world. expert who works for, in Singapore with people around that. Yeah, high, high, high number of cases there. Yeah. So high. And so I realized that Foria really helped with that. And so I was like, well, okay, if this is something that no one's really talking about, like maybe I should be the one to talk about it. Mm. I like cannabis. I'm educating myself on cannabis. I've been doing sex ed for a long time. You know, maybe, maybe I should be the one to talk about this because it's working for me and I'm into it. And now that's not to say that I'm the only one. Um, there is someone who is absolutely fantastic. His name is Dr. Nick Karras, and he is a sex and cannabis researcher. Uh, he's actually based out of San Diego. We had lunch last week. He's a delight, and he's done a ton of work um, researching how cannabis can positively impact sexual experiences. But no one was like really doing a lot of writing about it from a sex education perspective. No, Certainly no one was teaching classes about it. And I was reading a lot of these like sex and weed articles on, you know, various media outlets. And it was very like some journalist was given this assignment to write about sex and weed. It wasn't someone who actually knew about sex, like from a professional standpoint. And or probably and I was, was like, passionate well, about it either. Right. Yeah, not super passionate. Like I've had I've talked to a couple of journalists who are like, Yeah, my editor just thought like this would be a fun article for me to do, but I don't really, you know, I don't even smoke that much weed. I only smoke like once a month. And and there was all of almost all of the articles were very gendered, very heteronormative, very focused on penis and vagina sex. And I was like, Okay. I know that I can do this better. Hmm. <laughs> and because, you know, being queer, I figured out somewhere around college that I was bisexual and I figured around like 2013 that I was queer. I'm an equal opportunity slut. I care more about people's energy than their bits. Yeah. And I was actually curious what the difference for you, um, in the terms or the, the labeling is. I used to be really not into bisexual as a label when I thought that it really just meant, you like cis men and you like cis women that felt limiting to me. Okay. Cause I was like, well, bi means two. there's more genders than that. And I like all of them. Mm. Um, but what was recently explained to me like a year ago, um, by Alison moon and sex nerd Sandra is that bisexual really just refers to you liking people who are like you and people who are different than you. Mm. Oh, um, so bisexual totally could fit. I just like queer better. Mm -hmm. it, it feels better when I put it on. Mm, it's okay. inclusive to different genders. Well, as is bisexual, but like, it's just totally a, a preference for me. Yeah. Uh, like pansexual would be equally accurate. accurate. Sure. Well, and I would say if you went around and asked, asked people, the average person in the U S what does bisexual mean? They would say, well, that means you like right. boys and you like girls, men and women. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And, and when they say men and women, they mean cis men yeah. and women. So, yeah. So, I, I sidestep that completely by going with queer, but there's definitely, like, nothing. Anyone who identifies as bisexual is completely valid in their choices regardless. Um, it just doesn't feel the best for me, mm -hmm. and that's just my own preference. Mm -hmm. I think but that, that is, to me, the power of, of labels, you know, there's a part of me that wants to buck the system with labels and, and wants to just kind of get rid of all of them. But then there is this other side of it, which is a very powerful claiming place, right? Like, this is me. This kind of describes, like, my preferences and my desires and my kind of inclinations, etc. Exactly. Yeah, the the power to choose your own labels is really validating. Mm -hmm. So as we speak, where are you on the journey around combining cannabis and sex? I am fully on the path. I am learning new things every day. And I'm really excited about it, but I feel like I have a very good handle on what I've learned up to this point. Um, I do coaching, I do classes. Um, I had my 30th birthday party in April that was sponsored 
by a bunch of amazing companies, including Foria and Leafly and W Vapes and Evokes Labs and um, and Fun Factory and Pleasure Chest and like all of these really great companies like sponsored my 30th birthday party and was it a fun my party? dispensary. Le- it was so good. Um, <laughs> my dispensary, Labrae Compassionate Caregivers, was there and they were giving out cannabis to anyone who had their recommendation with them. So we did like a wristband thing where you could, if you had a green wristband, you could get the cannabis. And then um, afterward, the after party was a play party. And so the first thing we did in the welcome circle was check in with everyone and say, okay, does everyone feel like they are clear enough to give consent? If you're not, this is the time to like, go take a nap, get a drink of water and like come back next time. There's always going to be more play parties, but is everyone feeling like they're completely present and, and able to negotiate adequately? Everyone was a yes. And so we moved on and we had this awesome play party. One for those of the listeners that don't know what a play party is. I was going to say, which kind of includes me. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, a play party is a sex party where you have the opportunity to have sex. Um, I differentiate it from like swinger parties because it's not couple oriented. You can go by yourself and you don't have to play. You never have to play at a play party. You can just go and sit in a corner and, you know, journal. You can (laughs) take a nap. You can masturbate and not play with anyone at all. Or you might find yourself in the middle of a six person orgy if everyone's a hell yes. Like it's, it's a specific time and space and container for adults to experience sexuality in real time. It's like a, a real world sex lab where you can explore your hell yeses and find your no, because one of the rules is you ask and get a verbal yes before touching and you ask and get a verbal yes before moving on to each new activity. So if you ask me if you can kiss me, that doesn't mean that you can touch my breasts. Like you would have to check in before you do that. Mm. Got it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're a blast. I love play parties. <laughs> I can tell you're a fan. Especially as the after party I, to your 30th birthday party, it sounds like. Oh my God, it was so good. And my lover B was there and we had sex in the middle of the floor. We were the first ones naked and then we had sex under the stars and it was just glorious. <laughs> I'm usually the first person naked at play parties or one of the first. <laughs> I have to ask this. Doesn't it get distracting yes. when there's like a lot of people having sex around you to be able to just focus on your sex? I imagine for some people it would be. <laughs> for me. <laughs> like like that's real. Like, you know, if somebody is next to you like jackhammering, I can see that getting distracting. Or moaning. For and I'm me, like, um, I, I can't concentrate on my I can't concentrate on the moaning. Um, but surprisingly for me, I find it actually stimulating. Mm. Like it adds to the energy of the room. And I found that like, if you line up, I've done this, this actual thing with my friend Monique Darling. We take a couple of people and put them in the middle of the room, usually vulva owners, and each person gets a, a vibrator and we all start masturbating simultaneously. And inevitably, one person comes and like it goes down the line like the wave. Wow. The chain it sets off it the is, chain reaction. It sets off this chain reaction mm-hmm. and then like you just kind of watch it kind of move back and forth and undulate and and it's such a cool <laughs> experience to see. And so for one, I'm a massive extrovert and and um exhibitionist. So having people watch me have sex totally turns me on. I'm also a voyeur both like because it's sexy and as a sex educator i love watching people have sex because it's giving me data mm. i'm like oh they're doing this thing or like oh that's the face they're making or or they lifted the leg and like got that angle like it's all it's all field research <laughs> you're like minus the clipboard well i'm <laughs> I, i'm such a nerd or do you I carry a clipboard around i know imagine during the play party you're like Hold on, please. I need to judge on another <laughs> two. Well, luckily or unluckily for me, I have a quasi like videographic mm. memory, so I can just play stuff over <laughs> in my head. 
Yeah, it's not good for things I didn't want to see, but for things that like I need to remember, I'm like, oh yeah, that's what happened, and then mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I'm I'm curious again how the play party thing kind of tied into the healing from you know experiences of rape and kind of that that experience to this experience where everyone is there and consent is there and just what was that like yes. for you when you were at your first play party my first play party um was actually with a bunch of other sex educators so not only was it in a super consent focused environment it was with people who talk about consent for a living mm-hmm. Like it was the safest possible container I could have ever imagined. Um, And it was actually at another Catalyst Con weekend. And it was so cool. Like there wasn't a welcome circle because there was sort of, I found that when sex educators get together, they, they feel like they're kind of ninjas enough that they can just negotiate on the fly. Um, They don't necessarily need the container to be set up. Although I now do that at all of my parties but I didn't at first. I didn't even know what a welcome circle was. I had never been to a, an actual play party before. Um, but everyone, like, to a person would check in, always asking, getting a verbal yes, having the safer sex elevator speech from Reed Mahalko, and and checking in on, like, is this something you like? Is that something you like? Tell me your fantasies. And, and so I got better at being able to be like, ooh, what are my fantasies? Am I allowed to talk about them? to like someone I just met. Is that cool? And it was. And then I went to Monique Darling's play party and that was really like the game changer for me because I got to see a welcome circle play out. Mm-hmm. And a welcome circle is like, for me, the most valuable part of a play party other than the fact that they exist at all. And it's a- so describe that. Yeah, absolutely. So in a welcome circle, the facilitator or co-facilitators gets everyone into a circle and introduces themselves. Everyone goes around and introduces themselves and says like maybe why they're here, how they ended up there that particular night or, you know, just kind of where they were at or if they're feeling nervous, you know, just a a quick check-in. And then the facilitator goes through the rules of the play party, um, which are very similar to the rules for cuddle parties. If you've ever been to a cuddle party, Mm -hmm. Um, ask and get a verbal yes without before touching um, you can change your mind and are encouraged to change your mind. Um, if you're a yes, say yes. If you're a no, say no. And the upgrade, if you're not a hell yes, say no. Um, and if you're a maybe, say no. So like really like zeroing in on this idea of consent. And there are a bunch of other rules. There's, I want to say like 10 or 12 of them in all. But it sets a really good container where if you are a person who typically takes care of other people, you get to take the night off because the facilitator is your lifeguard on duty. Mm. Like they're the ones who are making sure that everybody's okay. If anybody has a problem, the facilitator takes care of it. If, if anything is needed, that's what they're there for. That's what you're paying them for because you often pay to go to play parties. Mm. Okay. And there are usually activities as well. Um, Monique likes to model the safer sex elevator speech and then break people into groups and have each of them practice giving it uh, even to people that they're not going to play with. Because at that point, you know, you're just in the welcome circle. You're still very much in the, uh, the fact finding part of the evening, figuring out who you might be vibing with. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then there, oh, are other, yeah, there are other activities okay. as well. So I'm hearing that the intention of it is to, uh, um, kind of maybe refresh or even teach people who are new how to communicate and basically how to create an experience that's going to be safe for everybody. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Exactly. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think I'm just kind of assuming that your experience at these play parties has really helped to kind of change the narrative around consent and and sex and kind of that whole piece of it the oh for sure i had a lot of guilt about saying no to people oh mm -hmm. and at play parties you're encouraged to say no interesting Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that 
that took time for me to like really be able to integrate that that saying no that no was a complete sentence and that I didn't have to justify it. I'm curious to hear, uh, and I'm assuming that there have been moments, but I'm curious to hear from you. What was a moment where you 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 at a play party in a safe space where you maybe said yes or you said maybe when you, when you weren't really a yes and the other person actually. Uh, kind of supported you and in, in guiding you to a no or to, to something that was more true for you. Monique has actually been really great about that. Um, she is so empathic that I can remember like the first time that we were going to play together, she made a request and I was like, I, th- I think I'm yes to that. And she's like, okay, close your eyes check in with yourself and if it doesn't feel like a hell yes then i'd rather do something else that is a hell yes and i was like whoa really <laughs> like that was a game changer for me mm-hmm. yeah yeah of having somebody else who's tracking you and watching it's the the opposite of what happens in a in a rape scenario Exactly. Someone who cared enough about my experience to encourage me to really like check in with myself about whether or not I was a hell yes to something Mm -hmm. like, wow, that felt good. As opposed to someone just trying to get as far as they could Mm -hmm. before they met resistance. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious if there's anything that feels important for you to share with us and and the people listening around either um, assault, um, being a survivor, or just the combining of kind of cannabis and sex, if there's something that's a really important piece of information. Just any pieces of the conversation Mm -hmm. that we haven't had as we start to wind down. Totally. Um, One thing I always tell people in terms of being a survivor is that Healing is not a linear process. Mm. There are twists and turns and backwards and forwards and upside downs and really good days and days that make you feel like it just happened yesterday. Mm. And that's not anything that's wrong with you. It's just the way that healing works Mm. and the way that trauma works. And I remember like people saying to me, you know, why can't you just get over it? It's been 15 years. Like I named my rapist on my blog last year. And it was 15 years later and I had people messaging me and being like, how are you not over this? That was so long ago. Mm. And that's not how it works. Healing takes time. It takes a lifetime. Mm. And even, you know, this realization about the sex and cannabis piece, like having that fall into place and seeing that it wasn't cannabis, it was dissociation. Right. That just happened. And I've been talking about my rape since 2005. Mm -hmm. So I'm always like learning new facets and finding out new things about myself and discovering new depths and making new connections. And so like I really encourage people to be gentle with themselves and to be patient with themselves throughout their healing journey Mm -hmm. because it is a journey. Right. And I imagine, again, it's the kind of you know, with healing, it's, it is that onion, like you take one layer off and then you take another layer off and another layer off. And, you know, we just kind of keep going deeper into the healing. And sometimes it feels like two steps forward and three steps back or whatever that is, but, um, it doesn't negate it either. Right. Like it's still totally healing's happening. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that I personally am fascinated about and, and, continually working to hone my awareness of is ways that we invalidate uh, either our own or other people's experiences. And it can be mm-hmm. so subtle sometimes of, right. of where, yeah, of somebody might hear the people around them saying it's been 15 years already. Why aren't like, why aren't you over this? And they might start to doubt themselves. Yeah. And, and there's these subtle, there's these subtle ways. They're like, man, sh- should I be over this already? There's these subtle ways that, that, our experiences get invalidated, but the truth is, is that if we feel a certain way, then we feel a certain way. Absolutely. And it definitely bears noting that like, I would not be 
where I am now, either career or healing wise, if it hadn't been for the incredible people in my life Mm -hmm. who have been so supportive Mm -hmm. and, you know, friends, chosen family, colleagues, my colleagues in the sex positive community and in the cannabis community have been so unbelievably generous with their time and their their guidance and their wisdom and and their networks like i am where i am today because a lot of people helped me get here mm-hmm. and i'm so so grateful for that mm-hmm. yeah. yeah are there any other parts of the conversation that you want to speak to before we start wrapping up nope i'm feeling complete cool so for the person who's interested in learning more about you or your work how can they find that you can find me on my website, ashleymanta.com, and that's A-S-H-L-E-Y-M-A-N-T-A. I'm also on Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, at Ashley Manta. And if you are listening to this and you call me and mention this amazing podcast, uh, I will give you a free 10-minute consult for coaching because I also do coaching. Yay. Mm-hmm. Cool. Wonderful. And they can... Do they can call you as your phone number on your site, or you mean if they reach out to you? Uh, email me. Okay, okay. So through Ashley, email me or reach out to me through the site. Yeah, yeah. Got it. cool. Yeah, I was giving out my cell phone number for a while, and then I realized I just I can't have my phone blowing up constantly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I need a buffer. Even though you're an extrovert. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm an extrovert that needs time to recharge. Of course, of course. Yeah, <laughs> everyone does. Yeah, totally. So in closing, Natalie and I have a couple of questions that we're each going to ask you. And my question for you is, how would you describe sex to somebody who's never had it before? Okay. Um, If someone has never had sex. Like virtual rolling up of the sleeves. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) um, The first thing I would say is that sex is what you define it as. Um, you can refer to masturbation as sex just as easily as you can refer to sex as something that happens between partners. Um, But assuming that we're talking about partnered sex, I would say that it is an experience that should be mutually pleasurable and completely consensual and at the end have you both with a smile on your face. Mm. I like it. That's awesome. And for me, my question for you, my dear, is what is your favorite part about sex or your favorite thing about sex? My favorite thing about sex is the way that I can move energy between myself and my partner. Mm. If you had asked me that two years ago, I probably would have said my favorite thing about sex was how good it feels. Mm. And now I've really started to appreciate the subtleties of energetic exchange with a partner. And so sex for me, the most fun is when I'm deeply connecting with my partner and we're just moving like these waves of energy between us. I definitely want to aspire to that. (laughs) (laughs) it still feels really good i like it i'm a fan (laughs) yeah well and i mean just just earlier today bob and i were talking about you know for both of us it seems like there's this whole realm of sex and spirituality and kind of this this you know this other dimension of it that neither of us have really like experienced before and are so curious about and because again, even just hearing you talk about that, I was like, wow, I don't think I, I don't know if I've ever experienced that before. There's just so many different facets of sex that oh, we have so many. no idea about. And I guess for anyone who has not experienced it, my other favorite thing about sex is that you get to choose your own adventure. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be this like very linear progression, you know, this escalator, like making out, then groping, then fondling, then fingering, then oral, then penetration. Like it doesn't have to be like that at all. You can totally shake it all up and choose any, all or none of those things. Mm-hmm. Love that too. <laughs> Ashley, thanks so much for talking with us. This has been a really awesome conversation. I love how articulate you are, and it's been really wonderful. Thank you so much. 
thank you so much for having me. Thank you for sharing your story with us. And I know it's going to serve so many people Mm -hmm. that probably, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, could use your words Mm -hmm. and and your love. Thank you. You can put your pocket calculator away. Episode's over. They didn't have it out in the first place. Remember, they didn't need it to know that it was episode 19. Touche, Natalie. Touche. Well, we hope you enjoyed the episode as much as Bob's pocket <laughs> calculator jokes. <laughs> and we wanted to let you know that Natalie and I, over the years, have supported hundreds of different people, both singles and couples, to help them have really amazing sex lives and relationships. We do this work as coaches. Uh, We've done a lot of it even together as a couple. And we wanted to offer the invitation to you that if you are looking for more intimacy, more play, more communication, more of anything that you want more of in your relationship, then we would love to support you around that. And we would invite you to go to sexthepodcast.com Reach out to us via the contact page there. Let us know what's up, and we would love the chance to love up on you. Yeah, hope to hear from you soon, and really hoping that you're enjoying this information and this education around sex that we have been doing with such loving and open hearts. We will see you next episode.